Good morning, everyone. Great to be with you today. First of all, I just want to thank everyone for the feedback I've been getting about our current uh, message series. We're going through six of the miracles of Jesus. I just think that there is something powerful about being able to connect in a fresh way with who Jesus really is through these very simple but also very complex gospel stories. You know, if you miss a week, you can always access uh, the archive of previous messages either through the church app or through the website. You can download audio, video, the sermon text itself. It's all there for you, so please take advantage of that if you miss a Sunday. On October 20th, I'm going to be starting a new six-week series entitled, I'm Spiritual But Not Religious. We're going to explore some of the basic teachings of Jesus and how they connect with this modern search for spirituality. Along with the message series, there's going to be a new class for adults called Jesus Among Secular Gods. It'll be taught at two different times. I'll teach it on Tuesday nights, and then Elder Dan Doherty is going to teach it on Sunday mornings at 11 o'clock. There's more information about that class in your bulletin this morning. So let's get to today's miracle. It's from Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. It's the story of the healing of the paralytic. Let's hear God's word together. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. And since they could not get to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts, and he said to them, Why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to this paralyzed man, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up, take up your mat, and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And so he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. And he got up and took up his mat and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. Amen. Thanks be to God. This is his word. Hey, I came across something that at least I think is kind of fascinating. It's what archaeologists say is the earliest artistic representation of Jesus, the earliest art of Jesus that has ever been discovered. It's a painting on a wall mural uh, found in the Syrian desert in a place called Dura Europus. Historians believe that 2,000 years ago, Dura Europus was a major city, kind of a crossroads between all the military outposts and the cities back then. What was found was part of a fresco painted on the wall of what they think is the oldest example of a Christian house church. Remember, in the first few centuries, Christians didn't have any real estate. The church, as constituted by Jesus, was people, not buildings. It's only in modern times that we've sort of blurred the distinction between the people who follow Christ and the buildings that they meet in. Originally, Christians met in homes in smaller groups called house churches, and this house church was dated all the way back to 235 A.D. And do you know what story the mural depicts? The one we read today. The healing of the paralytic. The earliest, the oldest artistic representation of Jesus. And it's this story. I just think that's amazing. It's hard to see on the slide, but Jesus is standing in the center of the mural. I hope you can see him. 
The paralyzed man is depicted twice, first just lying prone on the right side of the, of the tapestry and then, and then standing up, holding his bed on the left. And you can actually go and see this. It's on exhibit at the Yale University Art Gallery. But think about this for a second. Across almost 2,000 years, this story connects us with the Christians who gathered in that small house church in the Syrian desert because they wanted to learn about Jesus too. I just think that's so cool. Of all the stories that they could have chosen from the Old and the New Testament, why would their, you know, quote-unquote graphic designer choose the healing of the paralytic? What is it about the story that makes it so powerful? What is it about the story that it transcends time and culture and ethnicity and geography? I think part of the appeal of the story is that it shows such a compelling cry for help. It is such a visual story. It deserves to be painted. You can use your imagination and really see it kind of played out in your mind's eye because it's a story with a great cast of characters. First, there's the paralyzed man. Now, we don't really know anything about him. We don't know his name. We don't know how he got paralyzed. Maybe from birth. Maybe he fell off a ladder and cracked his spine. Maybe he got run over or hit and run by a Roman chariot. We don't know. The only thing we know is that he was lucky enough to have four really good friends. Somehow his friends heard the buzz about Jesus. Everybody was talking about these miracles. They heard about the healings. That got their attention. And then they heard Jesus was right next door to them in Capernaum. Someone told them, literally, Jesus is in the house. And so the word spread like grass fire. Sure, it sounds like a long shot, but what did they have to lose? So they said, let's go. Let's see if Jesus can do anything for our friend. And so off they went. You know, it's really hard work carrying a stretcher. I had to do it once as a Boy Scout. I was learning some badge. I don't know what it was. One guy at each corner trying to keep it level so you don't dump the guy off into the dirt. After a while, the weight starts to pull on your shoulder. You feel like you're going to dislocate your, your shoulder, so you switch corners. You know, you keep moving around. You get blisters on your hand. It is tedious. It is exhausting work, and it's slow going. So by the time they get to the house where Jesus was speaking, it's already a mob scene. The house was surrounded, people packed like sardines, shoulder to shoulder, no way to get inside to Jesus. No one will move aside, and it's like, what a disappointment. They faced an obstacle, a barrier between them and Jesus. And I can almost hear the guy, the paralyzed guy in the mat, just saying, hey, thanks for trying, guys. We're too late. Let's just go home. We probably couldn't do anything anyway. This is my fate. I'm just kind of stuck with it. I mean, what happens when you hit a barrier in life? Do you throw in the towel? Do you give up? Do you make an excuse? Do you settle? Do you think your problem is too big for God to handle? Or does it energize you? Does an obstacle challenge you to kind of turn up the dials on your faith, make you more determined to get closer to Jesus? I hope so. Now, this part isn't in the Bible, but I imagine one of the friends was a little frustrated at this point. I imagine he maybe turned to the others and said, you know what, we have come too far to turn back now. We have come too far to turn, can you say that with me? We have come too far to turn back now. And so they didn't want to give up. They were desperate. And you know, being desperate isn't necessarily a bad thing. It made them look for opportunities. It forced them to become creative when you're desperate, that's when the juices start to flow. It's when you're willing to do something bold, something uh, crazy, something unorthodox. They had the boldness to do whatever it takes to get their friend to the feet of Jesus. A bold determination. I mean, they were like hockey players circling the net, trying to find a way to get that puck in the goal. So one guy sees the stairs going up the side of the house. 
At that time, Middle Eastern homes had a flat roof that was often used as a patio where people would go and sit in the cool of the night. So one of them says, hey, we've come too far to turn back now. Let's go. And up the roof to the roof they go. But again, another barrier. There aren't other steps going back down into the house. It's just the flat roof, the mud and thatch roof. And I guess they probably looked at each other, I think with a smirk on their face, and said, we've come too far to turn back now. And they start digging. Now just imagine what's going on down below. Jesus was there to teach. Every eye was on him. Some were hanging on every word in hope. Others were the officials from the temple. They were there keeping an eye on Jesus, and they were evaluating everything that he had to say. They were critiquing. They were analyzing every word. And as I read that this week, I realized I'm a lot like that, you know, that I have a personality where I can't turn off my critical mind. I'm always evaluating, always judging, always critiquing. But if you're like that, then you're not really participating. That's part of my personality. And I've had to learn over the years that if I'm always critiquing, always being critical in my mind, I can't really enter into the moment. My critical mind stops me from being present, from really enjoying what's happening. And so I have to learn to silence that inner critic in my mind, that inner voice that always is evaluating things, so then I can enter into the moment and really experience it. That tidbit's for free if any of you have that similar kind of personality as I do. Because it was definitely the case for these teachers of the law. Some are there to listen. Others were there to evaluate and judge. And then there's the host. The homeowner who invited Jesus in. Now imagine that poor woman. Hospitality, such an important part of Eastern uh, culture. She's got this guest, and people start coming in. She's going, hello, hello, welcome, come on in. And she knows right away, I don't have enough cookies. I don't have enough punch. What am I going to do with all these people? Her husband starts moving the furniture around. People are climbing through the windows. They're stomping all over her flower beds. And then in the middle of Jesus' speech, they hear this scraping sound. Everyone looks up. There's some dust particles in the air. And then chunks of the ceiling start to fall in. And that sets off quite a commotion, I imagine. Jesus has to stop preaching. A hole appears in the ceiling, and it starts to get bigger and bigger. Pretty soon, there's a skylight. The friends of the paralyzed man have dug a hole through the adobe and the thatched ceiling. And then they see these four faces kind of peering in over the edge. And the people below, I think, probably heard him say, well, we've come too far to turn back now. And so the hole's big enough for a stretcher to fit through. They found some rope or something. They start lowering him down. The corners are wobbling. The poor guy on the stretcher's probably hanging on for dear life. But they lower him right down to the feet of Jesus. Every eye's on Jesus now. How's he going to react to this brazen interruption? I mean, who do these guys think they are? Tearing a house apart and interrupting Jesus mid-sentence. I love verse 5. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Their faith. Well, whose faith is he talking about? He's talking about the guys on the roof, the four faces who are peering over the edge of the hole. Jesus isn't even looking at the paralyzed man. He's looking up. He's so impressed with the man's friends, their bold, creative, determined faith, that he does what he does best. He then says to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven. I think at that point, you probably could have heard a pin drop. And I'm guessing from down below on the stretcher, Jesus felt a hand maybe tugging on his robe, heard the paralyzed man whisper, Jesus, legs. I'm here for legs, not sins, you know? 
I mean, what kind of sin can a paralyzed man get into? I mean, honestly, how bad could he be? But Jesus always goes beneath the surface. He's not interested in temporary solutions. Most of us, we, we always evaluate from the outside. Jesus goes deep inside. Jesus saw that this guy's greatest need was forgiveness. As I've said before, Jesus' primary mission was not physical healing. He could have healed people all day long, every day that he was on planet Earth and still never finished the job. And like today, physical healings are all temporary. doesn't mean we shouldn't pray for them, but you have to recognize any physical healing is temporary because at some point, the person's going to get sick and die. That's a reality for all of us. Jesus came to get at the root issue, the need that we all share, the need for forgiveness. And true healing and true deliverance does not come through merely curing an illness, but in restoring this right relationship between people and their creator. That's the eternal issue. Jesus said, your sins are forgiven. There were greater issues at stake in this man's life than his legs. This man doesn't know God. He's lying before Jesus, and he's separated from God by his sinful heart. Yes, he's paralyzed, and so his sinful self comes out in other ways, maybe self-pity or envy or despair and anger or a hundred other things. You know, the Bible wraps up all of these symptoms into one deeper disease called sin with a capital S. We tend to focus on sins with a small s, the, the things that we do. You know, you lie, you cheat, you lust, you gossip, you steal, all those kinds of little sins are with a small s. And they're just symptoms of that deeper disease, which is sin with a capital S. Sin with a capital S is our basic condition before God, our inner brokenness, because we're separated from our Creator. Now, you yourself, you can clean up a lot of those little sins with a small s on your own. You can learn to stop lying or stop lusting or stop gossiping. You can do a lot of that, on, and on the surface, you can be a very good person and still be far from God, still have a heart that is not changed before God. And so Jesus goes beneath the surface, and in some ways, he's not even that interested in the symptoms. He hits the disease, and then the symptoms can be addressed. But he goes to the heart of it, our brokenness before God. American writer Henry David Thoreau once wrote, For every hundred hacking away at the leaves of evil, there is one striking at the root, and that's Jesus. He's not dealing with the leaves of evil. He's striking at the root when he says, Your sins are forgiven. And you know what? He's ready to say that to every one of us here this morning as we put our life into his hands. My son, my daughter, your sins are forgiven. But the teachers of the law, their alarm bells are going off. They are on high alert. Who can forgive sins? They knew that granting forgiveness, that's something only God can do, and they were absolutely right. They were absolutely right. Only God has the power to forgive sin. So if Jesus was just an ordinary guy, they had every right to be angry. Jesus' claim to be able to forgive sins, that was a drastic declaration. If it wasn't true, then it was blasphemy, which means misusing or insulting the name or the character of God. And according to their law, somebody who does that deserves to die. Jesus senses that all this is going on in their minds, so he uses this as an opportunity to make it as clear as possible that he wasn't some ordinary spiritual guru, not just one of many great religious teachers who are pointing people towards God. No, he was God in the flesh. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father, Jesus said in John 14, 9. 
Jesus never pointed people in God's direction. He said, I'm God right here, right now, standing in front of you, the very presence of God in this world. And therefore, he does have the authority and the ability to forgive sin. And to prove it, he heals the man's legs. The man feels something he's not felt in a long time, or maybe never, power goes into his legs. He's immediately able to stand and walk around the room in front of everyone. A power goes into his legs, but more importantly, a power goes into his soul. The cleansing love of Christ goes into his soul. You see, legs, legs were easy for Jesus. Not a problem. Forgiving sin, that would be costly. That would cost him his life on the cross. One of the ways to tap into the power of a passage of the Bible, especially the Gospels, is to use your imagination and kind of insert yourself into the story. Put yourself in the positions of the different characters. So put yourself in the position of the man on the mat, the paralytic, who is helpless to help himself. That's all of us before God. It's the surface needs that command our attention, but what we really need is to come to the feet of Jesus and just hear his words your sins are forgiven. Whatever is going on inside of you, whatever struggles or hurts or fears or worries, whatever failures you're struggling with, Jesus is the only one who can fix that. He's the only one who can address that kind of brokenness. And so he says, your sins are forgiven. Do you struggle with bitterness or unforgiveness? Well, your sins are forgiven. Do you struggle with guilt or fear or anxiety? Well, your sins are forgiven. Struggle with a family or our friendship brokenness, our Lord offers us the same words that he offered to that paralyzed man. Your sins are forgiven, a deeper healing. You begin healing because you've been restored in your relationship with God. Only the person who hears Jesus say your sins are forgiven is ever free to experience true healing in other areas of your life. Maybe you've been kind of ho-hum about Jesus up until this point. Well, don't confuse religion with a vital relationship with Christ. The teachers of the law, they had buckets of religion, but they were dead inside. So secondly, put yourself in the position of the friends, the stretcher bearers. Imagine the guys on the roof watching as their friend stands up and starts to walk. They had to be high-fiving all around the circle. They didn't know much about Jesus. They only acted on what they did know. They took a risk. They were determined. They gave it their best, and the result was a moment that they would never forget for the rest of their lives. <clears throat> their friend was walking. Folks, we need to be so much more like them. We need to be stretcher bearers, bringing others to the feet of Jesus. We need to have that same kind of bold, creative, determined faith to bring people to Christ. I think God would say to us here in 21st century New Jersey, stop being so timid. There are people all around you in need. They need to know Jesus. You can't be their savior, but you can point them in his direction. If you really want to know the ultimate meaning of life, it's a life meant serving God and helping others to connect with him. Just making money, having a big house, having a title, folks, that is too small a goal for your life. God's purpose for your life is for you to try and help bring others to him. And in that way, we are all called to be stretcher bearers. This might mean just bringing somebody to church, inviting them to a youth club or online or a small group. But ultimately, it means sharing your faith in a way that kind of draws people to Christ. I really believe we need like a new injection of boldness in our faith as Christians here in very secular New Jersey.
We do need to push past all of the obstacles that we face, whether it's a lack of confidence or just worried how people are going to respond or the convenience of it, the timing problems. <clears throat> we need to be stretcher bearers who bring people to Jesus because you can't heal them, but you can pray for them and you can be there for them and you can lovingly influence people towards Jesus Christ. In the 1960s, there was a man named R. Kenneth Strachan who led a famous study on diverse movements that were rapidly growing in Latin America. Communism, Jehovah's Witnesses, and the Pentecostals. He wanted to find out, did any did these groups have something in common that made them grow and, and so rapidly multiply when their core values and the purpose of each of the organizations was so different? What he discovered was that the one thing that they had in common was that their followers were all incredibly eager to share and talk about the beliefs of their particular group. Whether it was the Communists, the Jehovah's Witness, or the Pentecostals, they had a zeal, they had a passion to share their beliefs. And Strachan famously has summarized his study with this phrase, the growth of any movement is in direct proportion to its success in mobilizing its total membership in the constant propagation of its beliefs. Let me say that again. The growth of any, <coughs> excuse me, movement is in direct proportion to its success in mobilizing its total membership in the constant propagation of its beliefs. What does that mean for us as a church? What makes a church grow? Guess what? It's not the pastor. It's not the music. It's not the architecture. It's not the youth ministry. All of those things are important, but there is no substitute for personal relationships, a personal invitation. Every study that's ever been done tells you that people come to Christ, come to church because of a personal invitation. A friend, somebody that they know invites them. Most people come to faith in Christ because of a friend or family member who just simply lives out their faith in Christ and then shares that faith in a positive way. That is how churches grow. One beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. When was the last time you invited someone to church? When was the last time you brought someone to church with you? When was the last time you had a spiritual conversation with somebody outside of the circle of the church? <clears throat> Excuse me. You know, this is a great church. We do a lot of things really well, not this. We are not very good at being stretcher bearers, bringing people to Christ. I, in fact, I'd, I'd probably give us a C in this department. Too many of us, far too many of us, are silent, secret Christians. We have pushed the mute button. It's a tough culture. I know that. I know it's tough. But how tough was it for the Christians in that house church in Dura Europus, Syria, when they were under the threat of government sanction, persecution, and people were being executed, sort of like the ISIS terrorists were doing recently in that exact same part of the world. How is it ever going to get any better if your Christian witness has been silenced? If you don't have the heart, the boldness, and the compulsion to bring people to the feet of Jesus, who else is going to do it? It's up to us now to pick up the reins. It's up to us to carry that. This is a powerful story. Because lots of people are living parallel, paralyzed lives. You don't have to be paralyzed bodily to be paralyzed spiritually. And there are a lot of people who have legs but who are far from God. Lots of people who can use their limbs but there's not much going on in their life. There are people around us with real needs and that's why our most important mission is right here in our neighborhood. 
our work, our neighbors, our family. There's a story back in the 1950s when Billy Graham was just getting started in his big citywide evangelistic rallies that some of you may remember. He asked community leaders, first of all, would they send him and his team a list of people who, had, who were hurting so that his team could pray for them prior to the campaign. The leaders in one city sent him a telephone book. Now, I know that's old technology for a lot of you. You don't even know what a te telephone book is. But the point is, this, there are people all around who are separated from God. The saddest part of the story is it's the religious people who don't understand they're just as broken as the man lying on the mat. Remember how I've talked about how Mark likes to set up contrasts in his gospel. Well, that's the contrast here. The teachers of the law, they pull out the rule book and they miss the very presence of God. They miss the miracle. They are spiritually crippled and don't see it. But the man on the stretcher and his friends, they went away changed for eternity. Folks, I believe Jesus is still changing lives today, and I want us to share in the joy of what God is doing. It is good to have a bold, creative, determined faith. It is good to bring people to the feet of Jesus. It is good to overcome all of those obstacles. And we have come too far to turn back now. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this story because I see myself so often in the position of the guy on the stretcher looking up into the face of my loving Savior and to hear those words of comfort and compassion, my son, your sins are forgiven. I just pray that we would all have that experience of knowing those words from you to our lives, Lord. And then, Lord, that we would also see ourselves as the stretcher bearers, those who out of love, out of joy, out of just a passion for our friends and for Christ to try and bring people in the best way that we can, being sensitive, being uh, careful, being guarding our words correctly, Lord, in all those things, but being intentional about trying to be a positive influence for Christ in the lives of other people, Lord. Give us that holy boldness this week, Lord. Give us an opportunity where we might just make a simple invitation, one step closer to Christ, maybe through coming to church or some other way, Lord, but give us that opportunity. Help us to see it and then seize it, seize it in your name. We thank you, Jesus, and we pray. Amen.